Nelson this morning and said, as soon as he shuts up, you get to eat lunch. But as soon as I shut up, you get dessert. <coughs> it's even worse. <coughs> well, I want to continue in the Feast of Tabernacles, a theme that we started a few weeks, well, not really a few weeks ago, but the days come together so quickly now, but a short while back, uh, about the bride, because in Matthew, uh, Revelation 19, here in verse 7, it said, Asleep, be glad, and rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. So he's saying here that when the time is come for the marriage, the wife will have made herself ready. That implies a great deal of responsibility upon her part to be sure she is ready for that marriage that is to come. And in verse 8, And to her was granted, this is something that is given, something granted to her, not something that can naturally come from herself, but something she has to have imparted to her, given to her, that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Now, we, as human beings on this earth, have not been righteous. We have not been clean and white. And in fact, we have an old boyfriend. His name is Satan the devil. He seduced Adam and Eve in the garden, and he has seduced every human being since, save he which came down from heaven. He has his own way of thinking, his own way of living. He can be very cavalier and dashing in some respects, and he can even appear as an angel of light, as do his fallen angels or demons. So, to this world, he's really been the knight in shining armor that has swept mankind off our feet. We have swallowed his line, hook, line, and sinker. We have gone his way. He deceives the whole world, Revelation 12, 9. The whole world. Everybody has bought into his system. And it doesn't matter what their race, their creed, their religion, or anything else. Mankind as a whole has gone Satan's way. In fact, it says that if it were possible, he would seduce even the very elect. Only a very small handful of human beings have departed from that system, from that engagement, if you will, or, should I dare say, even that marriage to the devil. Because we accepted his covenant. We went his way. We did things the way he said do them as human beings. The churches have, the politicians have, the whole culture has. We have gone the way of lying, cheating, stealing, selfishness, pride, vanity, ego, 
you name it. We have been proud of our birth, our height, our width, our whatever. Our smarts, our wealth, it doesn't matter. We are in a materialistic society today which judges everything by things, by what we own. God says our life does not consist of the things that we own, but of other things. Christ wants to marry a virgin when he returns, and Paul said, I present you as a chaste virgin to Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. Now, he was speaking to a group of people who had been about as bad a culture as had been. They were immoral in every way. They were not righteous in any sense. Now, how could Paul even think of presenting the Corinthians as chaste virgins to Christ when they were what they were and had been what they had been? It was only through the forgiveness and the mercy and the blood of Christ that their sins could be forgiven and they could be presented that way. So when he says here, it was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen and clean and white, it is through the repentance process, the reception of God's Holy Spirit after baptism, that we can be presented as clean and white. After we've dirtied ourselves, we cannot ourselves, in and of ourselves, clean ourselves up, can we? Because the wages of sin is death, and we would have had to have died for our sins. So he came and gave himself as a gift to those who would later become his bride, beginning with the Passover and the beginning of the year. And then there's a process of salvation that follows in the plan of God. So it comes down to the point that the bride has done what she can do to prepare herself. She has been granted forgiveness and made white and pure again before Christ. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So we are to be arrayed and clothed in righteousness. That righteousness has to come from God because we do not have it in and of ourselves, and our human nature is so easily deceived by the boyfriend who came. Now, once emotions have been tied to someone, in this case a previous suitor, a previous engagement, even a previous marriage, I think. I think we can go that far. We made a covenant with death. We made a covenant with Satan. Now we are to have a covenant of life with God. But those emotions remain in us. That experience is part of our life experience, if you will. We have those memories. We have those tendencies. We were seduced before, 
And Satan is there trying to seduce us again to give up, to quit, to be discouraged, to compromise, to still go along with this world to one degree or another and to whatever degree he can cause us to do so. And that is why God says, Come out of her, my people. Do not be partakers of her sins and of her plagues. Be different than what you have been. Come completely away. Do not compromise in any way. Now, I've preached this, as the other elders and those giving sermonettes and sermons here have. So it's nothing new to come out from her, my people. But I think we need to put this in the context of the bride. It is a context we can easily comprehend and understand, and it is the most powerful analogy that God uses for his people here in the end time. Now, he uses different analogies about the church, about him, but the strongest and the one that comes through and lasts to the end is the marriage or wedding proposal and that analogy, because it's the one that comes to the end here in Revelation 19, 20, and 21, 22. It's the one that stands above them all. Now you think, those of you who may have been married a time or two or three before, or had intimacies with others in the past, and how hard sometimes those memories are to completely forget and move forward from, and how they affect even a current relationship, because there can be jealousies that extend beyond for years and years and years, doubts, fears, questions, inferiorities, all kinds of emotions that can come to play because of past sins, because of past relationships, even legal ones that are now gone, but the effects remain. And those influence our lives, don't they? Now, that is on a very personal level. But what about the church, the whole bride? What about us as a unit, as a family, as a prospective bride, all of us together? And our relationship of the past. Now, we all shared in that one. Maybe we have not all had more than one relationship in the past. In America today, though, most have. Doesn't make it good, doesn't make it right. But let's understand it, thinking of those physical things, the way God and his Son would think of it themselves. Because they have seen the whole history of mankind, from Adam and Eve right on down, who have all been seduced to one degree or another by Satan and his demons, to go their way instead. And then we come to baptism. We decide we do not want to live that way anymore, that that way does not work well, that it is not good, that we want to change and be different 
that we want to devote our lives to a different cause, a mightier cause, a more noble and honorable cause than those personal desires and lusts and attitudes that we may have had in the past. So we make a vow to God, and he washes us in the waters of baptism, and our sins float away, and we receive the gift that our prospective husband has for us, a wonderful gift, his mind, his attitude, his spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then we are to grow as a bride and prepare ourselves for the ultimate marriage. And that's where we are today. We've been baptized, that is, we have been engaged, and we are preparing to be married. Now, in worldwide, it was not generally used in terms of the marriage of the Lamb, in terms of baptism counseling. We used not putting your hand to the plow and then turning back. We used building upon a foundation of stone instead of sand. We use the idea of conception at baptism and then growth in the womb until we are mature enough to be born. And certainly that is a very valid uh, analogy. But it only goes so far. And I do believe that we should have used the analogy of marriage first and foremost, front and center, in those baptism counselings, even above the other analogies we used. The others were very valid, they were worthwhile, they were good, and we got here with them, didn't we? But when you include the one of marriage, and you look upon baptism as an engagement, and the time thereafter not as just incubating in the womb to be born, but as preparing for marriage to God, you have a different outlook. Now look, let's look at it from his side of the coin. He has called us out. He has said, I want to marry you, will you marry me? And we said, yes, I will. I will marry you. But our old boyfriend calls. A month, two months, three, four months later. And he, he has an interesting new line. And it's a familiar voice. We've heard it before. We've given in to it before. And it is so easy to listen. We should hang up immediately. But sometimes we listen. And our new bridegroom-to-be says, Man, I cleaned you all up. I washed you, I forgot the past, and here you are talking to your old boyfriend again. How must he feel? How jealous must his reactions be? This is scary stuff, isn't it? Now we can just read those things that say, don't fellowship with the world. Don't let the world be your friend. And those are very valid scriptures. But what if we do kick it up a notch and say, you're betrothed, you're engaged. 
why do you still talk to your old boyfriend? Why do you still give Satan the time of day? Why do you still imbibe of his system and his culture and his entertainment and his things that would distract you, that would entertain you? Isn't that what a boyfriend does to convince you to marry him? Doesn't he buy you flowers and take you to dinner and take you to sporting events and to movies and, and buy you gifts and do things for you to make you say, hey, I like you. You do things for me. I'd like to spend more time with you because, hey, this is kind of nice. So Satan has offered us all those things out there. Now we're supposed to be preparing ourselves in righteousness and in holiness, attentiveness. Now when we're offered entertainment by the world and its culture, It's so easy to go there. Been there, done that before. That sounds like fun. And it's easy to forget a long life, a life filled with pleasantness and happiness and joy. Does your old boyfriend offer you how much life? How much can he offer you? 10, 20, 30 years of eat, drink, and be merry? 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 total maybe? And then what? Death. Eternal death for sin. Now he can make that ride to death sound pretty appealing. You know, it's kind of fun. Get your... Adrenaline going to run a car 90, 100, 110, 20 mile an hour. You start getting real excited as you see that speedometer go up there. But it can end in a real tragedy so very easily, can't it? Only one blown tire away from death and dismemberment. The ride can sound like fun. But what, where does it end? Eat, drink, and be merry sounds fun. When you're at the bar, drinking, smoking, getting high on various drugs, chasing men or women, whatever, whatever sin appeals to you the most. But how do you wind up? Heart disease, lung disease, cancer, old age lines before they're due, fatty liver, Shot kidneys, dead before your time, generally. Had a hell of a time, though. <laughs> fun while it lasted, but I'll tell you what, when it's over, it ain't much fun anymore. I've seen a lot of beat up, broken down people who thought they were having a good time until it was time to pay the piper. What does it take to convince the bride of Christ? Those that he has individually selected, chosen, set aside, called out, decided I want that one and that one and that one. Now, those are the ones I want. He even spent 
50, 60 years with Herbert Armstrong, preaching the gospel, calling these people, seeing who would show up, opening certain ones' minds, having a plain truth blow across the field and they got just the address off of it and thought it was a neat magazine and ordered it. How many ways did he bring us to where we are sitting right here today? It was with his personal attention. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him, John 6, 44. You couldn't get here unless he called your number. Couldn't be here. And then he looks down, and he sees us consorting with this world, flirting with this world, maybe dating this world in one fashion or another. And it gives him pause. And he ponders our heart. He ponders our actions. He wonders about our attitudes. And thinks, I got a lot of work to do there. Or, is this worth the effort? Let's just see what they do. Many have been called, few are being chosen. And I look at me, and I look at you, and I say, let's have a wonderful Feast of Tabernacles where the world is not around us. It's out there somewhere. We're just here. And I think it's good that we have a feast site that is separate from the world. We're not even in Springdale. It's majestic there. It's beautiful there. But the world is still all around us there. Here, we're off to ourselves. We have the fellowship with God and the fellowship with each other to enjoy. And we don't have that outside interference, except that unless we decide to bring it here somehow, and there are ways to do that, but an opportunity to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, with all our hearts, and as we heard this morning, to have a kind of feast that would please him and just make him so happy that there are my people, they've separated themselves away from the world for this period of time, and they're going to grow, they're going to overcome, they're going to work at preparing themselves and having white linens on, spiritually speaking, and when this eight days is done, they are going to be more prepared, more ready. Their attitudes will be better than they were at the start of those eight days. They are going to make great progress during this time. I'm going to be there among them. I'm going to walk with them. I'm going to be, in there, be there to inspire them, to encourage them, to correct them, to lead them, to guide them, to do whatever I can to grant righteousness to them. Here is my chance to date my bride for eight days. Here is a time when Satan is not around them and they're not out there wandering around among his bride, the world. God looks upon these days 
and us here as a wonderful opportunity to have a really good time, to have a wonderful date, to cement the relationship, to clear up some communication problems, to make the relationship better. This is our time to communicate and talk with him for an extended period of time without outside interference. What an incredible opportunity we have, brethren, to be here and to have this opportunity. Can we grasp that vision? Can we make use of this time in that way to prepare ourselves and make ourselves ready? Now I'm going to go back to Matthew 5, where I left off last time, because this is, as I said before, the terms of the marriage agreement. This is the new covenant spelled out in detail about what he expects from us as a potential bride. Here are the things we can be working on. Now, if you'll recall, the first thing he addressed was attitude, the kind of attitudes we should have, the meekness, the humility, the poverty in spirit, assessing ourselves way below what we might tend to. You know, some religions, some churches, are so obviously very self-righteous. Well, we are the Christians. We're the elect. Or even in splinters from the old worldwide church of God, there are those who take on pretentious, exalting, high titles. One calls itself the church of the very elect just to pick on whoever that is. Is that an attitude of poverty in spirit? Now I understand the thinking there of we want to be the very best we can be, but when you call yourself an exalted title like that, you tend to have that attitude about yourself as well. And you are putting yourself above those others. That is why I chose a simple title for this group at the very beginning, A Congregation of the Church of God. Not the Congregation of the Church of God, not the most exalted, highest, very elect sister, daughter of the Church of God, or the Virgin Bride of Christ Chosen Daughter Church of God, or something of that nature. I hoped that I and we would recognize ourselves as just some of those whom God has called out and then try to become something that we ought to be, and that is a holy, righteous bride. If you think you already are righteous, if you think you're already right, if you think you have it all, how do you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior? If you think you're good enough, as spewed out, 
How are you going to get better? What must we do to improve? If we have a poor in spirit attitude, recognizing our spiritual poverty instead of the one we had of we're rich and increased with goods, we don't really need anything but one plane ticket, to Petra and we'll be okay. That was the attitude we came to have. We failed, verse 3 of Matthew 5, right off the bat. And so on down through all of those. We failed them horribly. And that's why we are where we are today as a church, Worldwide Church of God, which actually no longer exists. Many left, took different names, and they finally changed the name of that organization, and now it does not even exist on the face of this earth. How sad is that? How sad is that? Nelson was counting up this morning. I hadn't done it in a few years, how many feasts he had attended. He made me cast back and hate to admit it, but this is my 57th. I was very, very young when I started. Fifty-seven years of going to the Feast of Tabernacles. Most of my life. And yet today, I look and say, <laughs> how could God ever, ever accept me as part of the Bride of Christ? And I hope that we all feel that way. Because given the opportunity that we have, we have a lot of growth, overcoming, and chance to be different than what we are. Sometimes I tire of preaching, brethren, and sometimes you tire of hearing. That's the way it is. But we are never to become weary of well-doing. We are never to let it get stale. We are never to get hardened. We are always to keep our hearts open and ready and be of a ready mind, teachable, humble, meek, ready to serve, ready to give, as a young bride should be. And not let our hearts become hardened, as they so easily can become. And one reason you get tired of hearing preaching is because it's two-legged men with smelly underarms that get up here and talk to you. And it's so easy to see their faults, their weaknesses, their lacks, and make our highest standard that which is maybe their lowest standard in some cases. Because they figure he can get away with it, so can I. And I only, if he, if he come this low, I can come that high and we're okay. We're together here. No, we've been called to the high calling to become like Christ himself. Because kind begets kind. And kind marries kind. So he wants us like him if he is to marry us. It's that simple. 
So when he addresses the bride with this new covenant, he says, hey, look, boys and girls, let's get our attitude straight first. Let's be humble. Let's be meek. Let's be serving and giving. Let's be eager, seeking with all our hearts of righteousness like silver and gold. Let's be merciful to each other and kind to each other. So he gets our attitude worked on first. Then he says, if you do this, next section, you'll have problems. And then he tells us what and who we are, the salt of the earth, the light on the hill. See, Satan has taken his bride into the darkness. His deeds are evil, and so are hers. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And that's where he took the world, and that's where he took us. He is the ruler of this world. And those few who will not go his way, he goes before our Father in heaven and our bridegroom on a daily basis right now to accuse us of everything he can think of in our attitude, our approach, our dress, our mannerisms, how we spend our time, what we do, what we think, he takes before the one who has vowed to marry us and points out all our faults. Now, when you were thinking of getting married, were it female or male, and somebody came to you and started pointing out all the flaws and the faults and the problems in your intended, how did you react? Try it even today, if you've been married 30, 40 years, and somebody comes up and starts moaning and griping and pointing out every flaw they see in your mate. How do you react? Boy, you sure got her or him figured out. I agree with you on that. What a lout I'm married to. No, 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 no. I don't care how you get along, your claws come out. Because that's part of you. Maybe the worst part, but it's part of you. They can talk about anybody's kids but yours, Mama, Papa. Boy, when somebody criticizes your kids, watch out. The defenses come out. How amazingly patient is Christ? We can have your old boyfriend come before him every day of your life and point out every bad thing about you he can possibly see, think of, allege, or lie about. He must love you a lot to take that day after day. Now how pleasant is it then when you consider that? How pleasant is it to our Father and His Son when you and I actually change? When we grow? When one of those items about you or me that Satan has been taking to our husband-to-be every day, and Satan comes up and says, 
Remember what I said about so-and-so yesterday? Yeah, I remember that. It's not that way anymore. Forget that. Move on. Satan looks back and says, What? You mean they changed it? Can't be. Well, I'll go back down there and see if I can fix that. So anything you overcome and grow and change in, you're probably going to get pressure on. Because Satan loved to take that juicy morsel up there every day, didn't he? And he feels deprived when you change something. This is going on every day, brethren. It's there. It's real. This is not religion. This is reality. Reality shows on TV are not reality. They're concocted baloney. This is reality. And he is going to come back, and it is good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Fear not, little flock. It is my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How forgiving, how merciful, how loving is he after all. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Let's understand what it is when we ask for mercy. Let's understand what's gone on. Before you ever go to him and say, I repent, Father, I'm going to change that. Help me change that. If he knows the things you have need of before you even ask, he knows also what you lack even before you ask. And it has been brought before him day after day without faith. God is reminded of your sins, your weaknesses, your faults. Every day the sun comes up and goes down, day and night before the throne of God. One of these days, before long, Satan, the old boyfriend, is going to be cast down to the earth and not allowed to accuse us anymore. And then he is going to come after the church of God, all guns blazing, to try to destroy, to kill each and every one of us. Because if he can't accuse us and send us into everlasting death, he will take his second best procedure, and that is to remove us from this physical earth. And he is going to kill approximately 90% of the church. Only a small percentage are going to be protected through all this. You are forewarned, and therefore you are forearmed. We still have a chance to prepare ourselves and to be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are about to happen to prepare ourselves as a bride, to be granted righteousness and holiness and white garments, to shed those garments of fornication and adultery with this world, 
not just on a personal level, but on a, an organizational level as well. Why should we go to the world and have them define for us what our personality should look like? How we should appear to the world? And yet, the largest group or organization of the splinters of worldwide has done just that. Gone to the world and said, you define how we should dress, how we should look, how we should present ourselves, how God's church should look. We're going to go to the world and ask them how we ought to look as a bride for Christ? How far off the track can you get and not even know it? How can this world tell God's bride how she should look? They don't have a clue what he says the bride ought to be. Now, if you start doing everything this book says, you're going to look like the bride of Christ pretty soon. You won't have to ask anybody how you all, do I look okay, dear, to your old boyfriend. What does your old boyfriend have to do with it? You're marrying God. Ask him how you look if you want to know how you look. Am I dressed for the wedding, honey? Still look a little too much like the world to me. You need to do this, this, this. Oh, okay. Then we go to work on it. All right, now let's get down to verse 17 of chapter 5, which is where I should have been in the first place. See if we can make some forward progress in this new covenant. Because, make no mistake about it, what he says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the terms of the marriage covenant of the New Testament. Now, they're expanded upon and detailed somewhat more throughout the New Testament, but this is the very basic. These are the terms. These are the conditions. You know, we have a very short wedding ceremony, generally speaking, physically, and you can't cover everything, can you? There are a lot of details that go into making a good marriage that can't be covered in a short five or ten minute dissertation. So this gives the principles about attitude, who I expect you to be, what I expect you to look like, and then the conditions and terms, or if you will, the rules. And he starts addressing the rules per se in verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. First thing he says, I honor, I respect the law, the first five books, and all those things that the prophets wrote. So the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, are still very, very valid. I did not come to destroy or put those things aside to obliterate them, to forget them, 
So then all you need is the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs for inspiration, but that's all you need. I didn't come to destroy those. I am not to come to, de- I am not come to destroy, but to fill them full. To fill them up. They were only half a glass. We want a full glass. We want this thing to be as big and as powerful as it can be. To be as righteous and as holy as possible. You had the law and you had the prophets. You did not live up to them. And I'm not going to set that aside for you. But I am come here to fill it up to the brim. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass. Now focus on that a second. He is talking here about something that is being instituted until the heavens and the earth pass. Has that occurred? When did you see the heavens and the earth vanish? Remember the day? Hasn't happened. And yet all of so-called Christianity believes the law is done away with. But the heavens and the earth haven't passed away, so apparently that's not so. (coughs) Now he gets very specific. Not one jot or one tittle not a punctuation mark, shall in no wise pass from the law till till all be filled to the full, brimful and running over. It's all still there. It's all still in effect. And it will not go away. He is the only one who has filled it to the full. And that did not do away with it. He raised the level, he raised the standard, and he lived up to it. Never sinned once even in thought the whole time he was on this earth. And then he said, do as I have done. Walk as I have walked. Think as I have thought. Bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. So he set the example that we should follow in his steps. I'm quoting scripture after scripture here of things that were said after this speech was given. He didn't just do it once and say, okay, it's fulfilled, now do what you like. Law's done away. Lie, cheat, steal, eat, drink, and be merry. Have fun, boys and girls. No, it's not the way it reads. It's all got to be filled clear up to here. And then he says in verse 19, Whosoever, therefore, as a result of what I just said, shall break one of these least commandments, the jots, the tittles, the smallest ordinances and statutes, not just the Big Ten, but the whole law, And shall teach men so. He shall be called the least by those in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, 
The same shall be called great by those in the kingdom of heaven. The by those is implied in the Greek. That pretty well sets this aside as better be very, very careful what you do. For I say to you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, how righteous were the Pharisees and the scribes? They adjudged themselves as the most righteous people on earth. They really felt in their heart of hearts that they were utterly righteous. They were so very, very careful about everything they did. They didn't just tithe by the shovel full or the dump truck load full. They actually counted every seed. You could stay up long nights if you had a big crop. Counting every seed to be sure that they didn't let one seed not be tithed on. That's pretty careful. Sometimes we take wild swings at it and maybe we discount things that we shouldn't really. We have to be careful. But they were so careful about all the details that they missed the whole picture. They were so busy with all being sure they absolutely kept everything that they forgot mercy, judgment, forgiveness, love, all the major points of the law. What do you mean forgive you? I'm counting seeds. What do you mean spend some time serving you? I've got to count these seeds. Remember Martha and Mary? One was there to hear. One was there to serve. Now, is it wrong to serve? No. But she got so busy serving in the physical way that she missed the message. She was much like the Pharisees in that regard. So busy serving, they didn't have time to look up and see what they were actually accomplishing. They were so busy watching their right hand and their left hand and see what it was doing, but they didn't have time to see what the effect was because they were being so righteous. Now, not only did they consider themselves righteous, but who else did? The people around them. Oh, they gave alms. They prayed in the streets. They fasted twice a week. I don't think any of us do that. The five that we now see we ought to do to, in a year become almost too much, don't they? So all those around them thought they looked good too. Appearances aren't what we have to go by. Then he gets into the specifics. 
He says, I want to compare that which was in the past with what I expect of you now. Now remember, you're to be the very bride of Christ himself. And he is righteousness. He is holiness. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Okay, thou shalt not kill was one of the big ten, right? Now, is he going to amplify that or what? Let's read on. Verse 22, but I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother and without cause is not in the Greek. He who is angry with his brother, with or without cause, is not even addressed. He who is angry, does the proverb say, don't, do, don't associate yourselves with an angry man? If we are angry, or whatever, in however way, angry with our brother, shall be in danger of the judgment. Now before, if you killed, physically, bang, killed someone, you were in danger of the judgment. Here he said, if you're angry with your brother, you're in danger of the judgment. He is pronouncing the same penalty for being angry with your brother as literally killing someone. This is coming down pretty hard already. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, or vain fellow, put him down seriously, shall be in danger of the council. Different levels of judgment here. But whosoever shall say, you fool, or you worthless person, shall be in danger of Gehenna fire. Hadn't killed anybody. Hadn't shot them, hasn't hung them. Just angry with them and put them down or we might term it character assassination. You're endangering yourself to Gehenna fire. All right, let's stop there, and we'll address this again next year when we get that one under control. You ready for dessert? Well, let's go on a little further. I want you to have something. Let's, let's at least get two or three things to work on this next year. Verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gifts to the altar, let's say you go before God. In Old Testament terms, this would mean when you bring your animal sacrifice to the altar to ask forgiveness for your sin. Today it would mean when we get on our knees before God to ask for forgiveness of our sin or to address him in some way for blessing or whatever the prayer might be. 
When you bring your, it wasn't always a sacrifice for sin. Sometimes it was a thank offering. So whatever offering you're bringing before God. And remember that your brother has something against you. Leave there your gift before the altar. And maybe this is speaking more in those terms of a thank offering, a gift to God, as opposed to pleading for forgiveness, because it does talk about the gift. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come again and offer your gift. He is saying here, do not even come and give a prayer of thanksgiving, or whatever your gift to God might be that day, praise, honor, glory, if you're at odds with your brother or sister. Go get it fixed. Then come offer your gift. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm just not accepting gifts today because things are not right between you and -and so-and-so. You know, that's just the way it is. Sorry. Go get that fixed and then come back and we'll talk. Now sometimes that is absolutely impossible to do. Sometimes a brother or sister is so intransigent, so set in their attitude or their thought or their way or their approach that they're not about to give in. Again, as mentioned today, we go in terms of Matthew 18 to do everything we can to gain our brother. So often we use that and we go there to prove that we're right and he's wrong. That isn't the point at all. It isn't a point of who's right and who is wrong. It's a matter of the relationship. God says do that not to get the judgment to go your way, which is what we generally want done. We want them to apologize to us so everything will be happy, happy. After all, they're the one that's wrong. Approach somebody from that standpoint and see how far you get. I came here to tell you how wrong you are and to ask you to apologize to me for having offended me. Things are going swimmingly, aren't they? Making heavy progress here. Many, many of us have complained that we've tried to apply Matthew 18 and it just didn't work. Of course not. You were right, they were wrong, you were self-righteous, and they were unrighteous. And you accused them of being what you were. And they saw through it, and you didn't get to first base. You know, if you're in an argument with somebody and you're button heads and you say, it's okay, I'll pray for you. That is probably the highest level of self-righteousness that there is. That is the highest level of saying, of course I'm right and you're wrong, but I'll pray for you. Your attitude is wrong, 
Mine is right. What you did is wrong. What I did was right. I will pray for you. It is a proclamation of our own righteousness when we do that. But we've done it. If not in word, in attitude. Poor in spirit, meek, humble. The reason it doesn't work in most cases is because we don't approach it in the right manner. We don't have the right attitude going in. And we don't get the results we want because we are coming from our correct perspective to straighten them out. <coughs> it won't work. If you come truly meek, truly humble, admitting you're wrong, in a beam-out-of-my-own-eye-I'm-the-logger-here approach, admit how bad you are, all you've done wrong, what your part in it was wrong, ask for their forgiveness and mercy for what you may have done wrong, and then ask them if they would do the same, you might gain your brother. You got a chance then. We can draw ourselves up and say, I tried that with so-and-so. Don't work. They're too vain. They're too proud. They're always right. How many point which way? We don't usually go at somebody like this, do we? Usually what we see in somebody else is our own problem. That's why we recognize it. We've seen it in the mirror. It's all too familiar to us, except that it goes over our head and we forget what we saw. <coughs> now, if God put it in there as the right approach then it ought to work. If that's what God says do, then it ought to work. If it didn't work, is it God's fault? Because he gave us the wrong formula? No, we just didn't approach it with the attitude of the bride as outlined in verses 3 through 10 or 9. Peacemakers. We create more war instead of peace so often when we try to fulfill Matthew 18 thinking we're doing it in righteousness. Well, God says, hey, don't come talk to me. Don't praise me. Don't give me honor. You go fix that. Then we'll talk. You didn't have to murder anybody. Just be angry. Just put them down. Just judge them sinners. A fool, a sinner. If you make that judgment in your mind about somebody, you're in danger of eternal fire, or the eternal Gehenna fire. Not burn forever, but to die in it. 
Now Romans 12:18 I think says that we're to live peaceably with all men so much as is possible. Now you're not always going to win. Sometimes they just simply will not give. But if you do your part with the right attitude, going about it right, without anger, with love in your heart. And when you're mad at somebody, it's really hard to go with love in your heart, isn't it? Maybe instead of popping off the minute you get angry, you need to think about it for three or four days and come to truly love that person and approach them in real love, not in pseudo-love. Well, I love you is the reason I'm coming to straighten you out. That's the kind of love that won the girl, isn't it? Here to straighten you out, honey. Then you'll want to marry me. Don't think that line's going to work, guys. And it doesn't work with each other. I remember <laughs> sophomore in college. You know, freshmen don't know much, but sophomores got her all figured out. I think I recounted this some years ago, maybe not here, I don't remember. But he, I was bringing my date back to the girls' dorm, and uh, he came around the corner with his date, and he was just winding up his speech. I know it had been going on for at least 30 minutes, because that's how far it was to work, walk some Bible study back to the campus. And he was saying... Now, I've told you about all your problems, and I want you to work on them, and next week I'll escort you to Bible study again, and I want to get a report on how you've done. They are now happily married, have been for some 40 years. Yeah, right. I doubt she ever went anywhere near him again. If she did, she was in need. <laughs> he didn't last in college too much. Good thing he was perfect as a sophomore. He never made it as a junior. There is a right way. Agree with your adversary quickly. Agree with your adversary. Does that mean that you hold out and you're going to prove that you're right, and you're going to have it your way regardless. Now, if somebody is against you, and they have something against you, going to them, tell them we're going to do it my way, is going to settle the problem right away, isn't it? Not likely. So when it says agree with your adversary quickly, it means make a deal quickly, which means giving something, right? It doesn't mean holding out and proving you're right and getting your way. Because he is not ready to bend. That's why he's your adversary in the first place. So you have to do some giving. Then you might get the problem solved. Agree quickly while you're in the way with him. While you're walking, while you're still 
dealing with this person. Because when it breaks down where you're not communicating with each other anymore and it's impossible to solve the problem between you, then you do what? Less than any time the adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and you be cast into prison. It's just going to get worse the further you push to get your way. It just gets worse and worse. Give. I say to you truly, you shall not, you shall by no means come out till you've paid the uttermost farthing. You'll be down to your last dime. What happens when you go in prison? You lose your job, you lose your house, you lose your car, probably lose your wife and your family. Because you're not there to support them, you're not there to pay the bills, you're not there to love them, you're in jail. And their attention goes somewhere else, sooner or later. And you sit in jail rotting, and everything is gone. And you think, you know, maybe I should have given them that hundred bucks. <laughs> or whatever it was. Maybe I shouldn't have pushed my way quite so hard. Well, that's, we're finally at the end of that one. I almost gave up two or three verses too soon on the first point. Verse 27, now on this one about adultery, we have generally always applied this personally and individually, and certainly that is a very great application here, and one we should be very, very aware of, and yet at the same time, let's, let, let's look at this institutionally as well, that we corporately are the bride of Christ, he has selected us not as one individual, but as a calling to choose from, just as he chose not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but all Israel. And all Israel made a covenant with God, and then all Israel broke that covenant, and it wound up in divorce. It is hazardous to look upon each of these rules as me only. Now, we have to take it personally, no doubt. But we are a family. We are compositely a bride. We are here to hopefully move forward in the process together. And it is vital how we get along with one another in terms of our judgment, as we've already seen. How we treat other is each other is exactly how he will judge us. Not our relationship with him as we perceive it personally, but our relationship with the group is how we are judged. How do you treat so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so? That's the way I'm going to judge you. Okay, let's look at this one then, because we are here collectively as a potential bride, not just as individuals. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not commit adultery. Now, they were held individually to task on this in terms of stoning, but all Israel was indicted in Ezekiel 16 as being a faithless bride and divorced as a result. So it is both individual and institutionally. I say to you, 
that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Not coveting is one of the big ten, the last one. Coveting, lusting, they're similar. Now I started this sermon out with Satan as that old boyfriend we had. And he still can look pretty good at times. Can be transformed as an angel of light. The things he presents as opportunities, as temptations, as pleasures, can seem pretty attractive. If not, why haven't we given them up? Why do we still see here evil and consider it entertainment? Why do we still play destructive kill, kill, kill video games? Why do we see things on the Internet we shouldn't see? Why do we still go to the sexy and violent sinful movies. And it's hard to find one that doesn't have some of that, or all of it. Science fiction, demonism outright. There are ministers in the church of God who have talked about, oh, what's this little demonic thing that's so Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Recommended people in the church go see Harry Potter. It's outright witchcraft. Teaching children witchcraft. I dare say there's some in this room who have seen a Harry Potter movie. Shame on you. You're talking to your old boyfriend in the world. We are not to go to the wizards that peep and mutter. That stuff is outright demonism. And seducing God's people to marry Satan the devil instead of Christ. Let's get real. We are strictly commanded not to be involved in any of that stuff. How easily Satan seduces us away from God. It's so easy to fall in love with this world and its system. Those who say they love me and keep not my commandments are liars, and the truth is not in them. Your fellowship is not with the world, it's with the Father and Son. I'm quoting from 1 John. What are we going to do about it, Bride? What are we going to do about it?
Whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. How many commercials on TV show young men and young women in various kinds of movements and dances and attire that are there to incite desire and lust in the eye and the ear of the beholder? Sex cells, violent cells. That's the kind of generation we're living in. It's the way it was from Adam and Eve on down. Nothing has changed. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just more of the same. But now it is thrown in our faces in so many, many ways that did not exist before, electronically. How do you avoid that stuff? What can you watch that doesn't have it? It is there to incite lust, to sell a product, to lust for a product. But they use young bodies of men and women to raise that desire to have that product, that beer or that pill or that whatever it is they're trying to sell. They use it to sell motorcycles and windmills. Anything. Everything. And we watch. God tells us to dress modestly. We're working on that one. And I thank those of you who are responding, being more careful. It isn't all the guy's fault. He, yeah, he has his problem. God made the human female form attractive to a man. He really did. It truly is. Now, he has his responsibility to control those impulses and those thoughts. But you have a responsibility to your brother to try to help him so his fight is not quite so tough. The old, he shouldn't look. Get off it. No, he shouldn't look, but you shouldn't show it either. You have a responsibility. Why push it to the limit? Can I get away with this much? How about that much? How much can I show? This much? Or that much. Somebody says, well, the rule of thumb is four fingers from the neck. So she says, all right. It's only two inches between. One inch, two inches above or below the knee. Okay. Whatever. And I don't mean to just jump on the girls. Because they do it with the young guys, too, don't they? They make them as sexy and attractive as they can. And a lot of girls are getting where they think a lot the same way that guys always have in this society. The same kind of lust of the eye. Because we have been conditioned by this culture so much to be that way.
and gay. Maybe, girls, you're not just enticing the guys. Maybe you're causing some of the girls to lust after you, too. Did you ever stop to think about that? You're helping them be gay. You guys that walk around with your pants hung way down in your underwear showing out the top, I don't guess we have that here, but they're doing it in town, they're enticing other guys to be gay. It is an invitation that was started in prison. And you want to mimic that? Now he's putting this, it's not a matter of committing adultery. It's what you think and what you let your eye go to. This, this is a tough deal. If your right eye offend you, pluck it out. Cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into Gehenna. If your right hand offend you, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into Gehenna fire. Now, does that mean that if you have a problem looking, fellows or girls, that we should take you down and have your eye removed, literally. Or if you want to use your hand in a wrong way, whack that puppy off. Is that going to solve the problem? No, because those images could still be in your head if you can't see with your eye anymore. It's what's in here that's the problem. You could cut your hand off and your arm still wants to go there whatever it is you like to do wrong. So it's not a physical thing he's talking about. It says cut off that which your eye or your hand wants to do. This is a spiritual problem. Take away that ingredient of lust and covetousness that is so natural to human beings. Now adultery is not just a sexual thing. Israel committed spiritual adultery as outlined in Ezekiel 16 and Jeremiah and other places by making compacts and agreements with the world, by the concourse of business, uh, of looking to the military to protect themselves rather than to God, uh, going to the world for healing instead of going to God. There are so many, many, many ways we can commit adultery against the Father and the Son. So many, many ways. Anything that takes our attention away from them in the marriage to come is an adulterous situation. It could be sports, it could be games, it could be music, it could be anything that takes our attention from our bridegroom. And that would be adultery as well. It has been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Moses did allow. Oh, man could get rid of a woman for pretty near any cause. But I say to you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of porneia, which is essentially any sexual sin or fraud in some form, or unfaithfulness uh, in 
a broad range of things Pornea calls, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. So God gives a very narrow range for divorce and remarriage. Very narrow range. Can't be for just any reason. Well, we're not getting along too well. Irreconcilable differences. No, just somebody needs to repent, or two bodies. Again, you have heard that it has been said by them of old time, you shall not forswear yourself, but shall perform to the eternal your oaths. But I say to you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your communication be yes, yes, or no, no. For whatsoever is more than these comes of evil. Our word should be good. If we say yes, we mean yes, and we will perform. If we say no, we mean no, there is no argument. We don't need to swear, we don't need to curse, we don't need to say it 16 times. We just need to make up our mind, say yes or no, and stick by it. Anything more than that leads to problems. I'm going to quit there because it's dessert time for sure.